Kicking off hour number three here in the White Claw Hard Seltzer Studios. We haven't talked NBA in a long time. It used to be my thing. I used to be Knoxville's go-to voice on NBA. You kind of abandoned it here. But I got I don't know if it's because the Hawks suck this year. But I have found myself less like invested in the NBA season. I think it's because the Hawks suck this year. <laughs> I think that is why. ESPN put out their NBA title contender tiers. I think it's pretty simple. I don't know if I needed tiers to tell me that there's like four teams I think can win the title. Really only like I guess what kind of tiers do they have, Bob? How how many do they deem as contenders? Where do they break it down? Like title favorites, contenders, dark horses? Is that the type of the vibe they're going for? They have four tiers. <clears throat> the first one is the favorite. Okay. That's the Boston Celtics. Clear-cut favorite. Then there's the inner circle contenders. And then there is the hopefuls. And then there is the long shots. And they do cut it off there because kind of bums me out because both of our teams are not on – even in the long shot. Well, I knew my team wouldn't be. I'm, I'm a little surprised the Pacers didn't at least make the long shot just because I, I do think that you could talk me into them being a long shot to get into the playoffs as like a five seed, having a chance to have Tyrese Halliburton and, and Pascal Siakam get hot, maybe. Do yeah. I think it would ever happen? No. No. So the title favorite, the juggernaut, the Boston Celtics, they stand alone. They stand alone, plus 260 odds. That's an ESPN bet. But, yes, they have them uh, as the clear-cut favorite. I'm still – I got to tell you, though, man, for some reason – I mean, I think they're the best team in the league, but I don't think that they just walk through the playoffs. I don't see it. Well, they've never walked through the playoffs. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, like, I, it's, it is that time in a player's career, though, where they hit the next level. When you look at Jason Tatum's age – his experience, where he's at in the league. Like, this will be a big season, a big postseason for him. Nothing he can do in the regular season matters. But by the time the postseason rolls around, he'll be 26 years old. That's kind of the time we start asking, okay, what are you? What are you going to do? Are you going to be a championship-level player? Especially, like, in modern basketball where guys didn't hang around in college for three or four years and come into the league at 22 21 years old like Tatum's been a guy since he was 19 he is a veteran now year seven's kind of the year you're supposed to to be who you are Giannis won a championship at age 26 LeBron would have won a championship around that age as well like that would have been the time you know that the heat maybe broke through maybe it was 27 but like in the same type of year and unlike LeBron and even unlike Giannis the Celtics have been on the doorstep for, you know, four years with a lot of the same core. Now, that has shifted this year. The core did get shook up. You know, Marcus Smart's gone. They, they did different things. Now the team looks a lot different with Drew Holiday and Porzingis. You still got Horford there. But, like, those pieces are perfect complementary pieces. And, like, they have a five or six or seven guy rotation that's as good as anybody in the NBA. They should have home court advantage. I don't want to say now or never for somebody who's about to turn 26. I'm, I'm not saying that. But it's now or, like, you become the poster boy for unable to get it done. That hasn't happened to Tatum yet because of his age. Because things quite weren't right with them. But now they have the best team. 
it makes sense on paper. It makes sense on the court. They have different lineups. They could go super big if they want to have Horford and Porzingis both out there. They can go small. They got defensive guards that can score with Holiday and and Derek White. He's got a good sidekick at Jalen Brown. Last year they blamed, you know, the coaching change. They blamed Udoka getting fired right before the season and saying that the new coach didn't have a chance to have his assistant coaches in there. Well, he was able to fix his staff this offseason. I don't want to say it's now or never, but it's it's now or we're going to start saying that Jason Tatum is more Carmelo Anthony than, than LeBron James or Kobe Bryant or Michael Jordan. So start getting mentioned along those guys that can't get over the hump. They've also got a bit of an unsung specialist which I think I think back to great teams in the NBA and they always have one is like a three-point shooter and Sam Hauser's become that for them sure um you know he's not in that core five but he gets 15 17 minutes a game knocks down a couple three four three pointers he'll have a moment in the second round of the playoffs this year where he hits four threes off the bench in like a five minute span yeah swings a game I mean, the, my biggest question is: A, can Tatum make it to the finish line without getting banged up? Because he's, he, he, you know, he had a really bad finals against the Warriors. They said his shoulder was banged up. He he gets outplayed by Jimmy Butler whenever they go up against the Heat. I have questions about him being able to actually get over the hump and win. And then, of course, Joe Mazzulla. I still don't know if he's any good as a head coach. He doesn't feel like he could be a good enough coach to to coach a championship level team. He kind of got thrusted into that. Because of M.A. Udoka. But at least this year they were able to give him good assistant coaches. And I think, talk about durability too, Porzingis is another one. Sure. And you mentioned it earlier. but And I love watching him play, I have to say. I mean, I've always felt – remember they called him, I think, like the unicorn when he came in. And sure. I mean, he is a special player. It's just, can he can he make it all the way through, like, to an NBA Finals? Um, because they're, they're a different team when he's on, for sure. How many teams are in the inner circle? There Deemed are. as the next biggest contenders, of course, to stopping the Celtics winning their first, their second championship in like, you know, 40 years. Three teams in the inner circle, two of them defending champs. Well, no, one's a defending champ. The other one's a former champ. The Denver Nuggets at plus 450. Uh, the Bucks at plus 650. And you said there's one more team? Yeah. Uh, I'd imagine it's the team that I actually think is going to win. Is it the Clippers? It's the Clippers at plus 500. I think the Clippers are my pick right now to win it all. Could be. I like the way they play. I think that they can can match up with Denver because Denver's still, Denver's still the champs, and it's still going to be really tough to beat Jokic in a playoff series. But I do think, A, Ty Lue is a really good coach, and B, like, as long as they get to the finish line healthy, I still think they have maybe the actual best two-way wing player in the league still. Maybe the best two-way player in the league still with Kawhi Leonard. Kawhi almost was going to beat the Suns last year without Paul George until he got hurt. He was balling out. So I have no problem with that inner circle. I have no problem with that top four. I do think those are the four best teams in the league. The Celtics are the favorites, but those next three teams wouldn't surprise me if any of them won. The Bucks, maybe the the – the least deserving of being at, at that level, maybe I'd be the most surprised if they won, but they still have Giannis. And if Giannis went on fire and Dame was hitting big shots, maybe you could see it. But 
I would even say that there's a drop off between three and four, and and that and that the Bucks are four for me. Yeah, back to the Clippers. The way it, it's kind of nice to see because he's been so um, frustrating to watch for a couple of years. But Harden's back for sure. He's fit in really well. They've accepted him, and that also means Westbrook has accepted his role too. And um, that's really become a good team. I I do think. I think Kawhi's resurgence is key, but I also think Harden's adaptability to what they're doing has been has been key as well. Well, it's funny because you have three guys there of the four big ones that are like trying to change their legacy. Right. That's why I'm so fascinated about the Clippers. Is like we talked about how it didn't matter for Jason Tatum into the playoffs. Well, you could definitely say the same thing about about Paul George. You could definitely say the same thing about James Harden. Both those guys have to finally perform in the playoffs. I know Paul George calls himself playoff P, but the stats ain't great for playoff P when it comes to the playoffs. And, of course, James Harden, maybe the poster boy for being this generation's Carl Malone of like, hey, regular season MVP, get you to the playoffs. It's a little bit of a different story or a lot of a different story. So those guys are now paired up with the Cyborg who is trying to chase LeBron James in terms of bringing a championship to three different franchises. The list of people that could say they've done that in the NBA is very, very, very short. I think it might actually just be LeBron James when you look at finals MVPs. Kawhi Leonard could add his name to that and, you know, work on fixing his image and legacy. Because if you remember back in 2019, we were ready to say it was Kawhi's league, to say he was the best player. And then, you know, injuries have kind of derailed him and, and going to the Clippers. It, it's been one embarrassment after another, whether it be the bubble blowing that lead to the Nuggets or just them being banged up and not playing and load management and all that. But he has a chance to kind of fix that. And it's crazy. We we don't really talk about the Nuggets. They're in that grouping. Um, pretty much the same team. They I think their only loss last year was Bruce Brown. Yeah, it's a big loss, though. It is. It's a big loss. He was an important part for them. They don't seem to be as focused this year. They don't seem to be as good. But when it comes to playoff time, it might just be like, we still got Nikola Jokic, and he is the best problem solver in the NBA at this point. Like, you can't throw any defense at him because he has the LeBron James, Magic Johnson, Larry Bird mind, except he's seven foot and wide. It can impact rim protection and can, you know, just score three feet and out. Did you see him last night? I did not. He went – I'll pull up his stat line here. 21 points in 31 minutes, 19 boards, 15 assists, 10 for 10 from the field. He's as good as it gets. Yeah. Like, he's the best player in the league. And I do still think, like, he deserves to be in what they call the, the inner circle just because as long as he's there and healthy, they're going to have a chance to do something in the playoffs and – and he's still the best player, and like I said, he's still the best problem solver. And over a seven-game series, it's going to be hard to beat that guy four times. The third player all-time to record a triple-double against all 29 NBA teams that he has faced in oh, his wow. career. The what number player? The third player. Do you have the other two? No. Um, like Oscar? Um, let me look. I would imagine Westbrook's got a lot of triple-doubles. Maybe him, but. How much longer does he have to play to be like an all-time great? Jokic? Yeah. That's a fair question. Like, I mean, he's already a Hall of Famer because, cause, A, it's easy to get in the Hall of Fame in basketball. And, well, 
guess there's no B to that really. Just A, it's easy to get in the Basketball Hall of Fame. He's really great, I guess, would be B. But, like, yeah, like, when does he enter the top ten of all time category? Yeah, yeah. Another title. Another MVP, another title. I mean, I, I think you could already make the case he's the most talented big man that's ever played. But, like, career-wise, he doesn't stack up to Shaq yet. He doesn't stack up to Kareem yet. Just because, you know, Jay Williams kind of got himself in hot water with Caitlin Clark. I don't know if you guys saw the yeah. discourse surrounding Jay Williams. But, but I don't think he was wrong. Like, he was on TV saying he doesn't think he, – he doesn't consider Caitlin Clark great yet because she doesn't win any championships. And when you say, like, hey, she's not great, I think that's stupid. But if you're saying, like, hey, my all-time greats, when I'm talking about the GOATs, and that's to me what greatness is, you have to win titles, especially in women's basketball. Now, you know, he then went on to talk about the UConn women and, and Tennessee women and things like that, the South Carolina women, which is fair. But you could also say, like, if Caitlin Clark went to UConn, if Caitlin Clark went to South Carolina, she'd be the same player and she'd win titles. I do think you have to give her a little credit for doing it by herself with no other, like, stacked team with her. Like, she is Iowa. Same for Jokic. Like, Jokic built Denver. It wasn't Shaq striking out with the Magic and going to the Lakers. There is, there is, you do get credit for building that. Like, that, that's what the argument for Michael Jordan is, right? Like, he didn't have to go around to different teams. Now, you could say that, he, you know, the organization did a good job of putting big talent around him. But still, people say, hey, he didn't have to run and chase something. LeBron didn't win a title in Cleveland until he came back when things were good. He had to go to Miami to do it. That's why we give Giannis his one championship a lot of weight, too. And Dirk's one championship, a lot of weight there. But to be an all-time great, to be like a top five, top six player, you probably got to have more than one ring. Jokic needs another one. The other two that have recorded triple-doubles against every other team that they've played against in NBA history, LeBron James, Russell Westbrook. Okay. Actually, probably – things we should have known you know what I mean those seem logical well Westbrook I said but I just didn't I, I guess LeBron's got a lot of triple doubles too I just don't think of him as that guy yeah but I guess he is when you play for that long yeah <laughs> I guess he is to put a bow on this for the hopefuls and we won't be able to go through each one but just by name Cleveland Cavaliers plus 2500 Timberwolves plus 2500 which surprising they're not a little higher but it's like they still have to show some playoff depth uh the Knicks the Thunder, the 76ers, and the Suns. Yeah, all those are great. Like, hey, they're hot teams. They got some qualities. They got some stars. But, no, the, the championship runs through those four teams we already mentioned. Yeah, and then the long shots is just really interesting. Yeah, okay, uh, if you find it interesting, I was going to say that. Yeah, because, well, it's, it's kind of two brand names. The Golden State Warriors and the Lakers are okay. in there. And the Heat. I was going to say the Heat probably deserve that same kind of thing of, like, hey, these guys can flip the switch, but, like, they're going to be stuck at the play-in. At least the Lakers or Warriors are. Like they're not. They're not getting yeah. out of the play-in. They're not getting out of the play-in. Then going to Denver. I guess if you tell me Minnesota's the one seed that I could think that the Lakers could beat them in an eight-one matchup. God, I would hate to have to play the Lakers or the Warriors in an eight-one matchup. But I feel pretty confident that the champion is in the top four that we talked about. Yeah, I would agree. The Celtics, Clippers, Bucks, and Nuggets. One of the champions, or one of those teams will be the champion. Although a lot of people, you know, say they get ready for the NBA season whenever the, you know, all-star break is over. The all-star break's over. It's getting ready to be a sprint to the finish line, and then we get to the playoffs. So It's always crazy. All-star break happens, and it's nowhere near the halfway point. There's, like, only 27 games left yeah. or something like that. Yeah. So, 
We'll do our weekend betaway with Eli Herskovich coming up after the break. Stick with us. It's time for our weekend betaway. Eli Herskovich, the lines.com host of the Outside Shots podcast. Eli, good to talk to you this week. Hope you're well, my friend. Good to talk to you, too. I'm sure you guys are feeling good after Dalton Connect might have saved you from some embarrassment. Nearly, nearly. I don't, maybe not losing to Missouri, but it looked a little scary in the first half. Okay, talk to me about that from an outside perspective because, yes, we are secure here in Knoxville. We got a nice little bubble. I, w- I was curious how the National College basketball personality viewed that performance because here, Eli, we're just saying, hey, a win's a win. It was your last, what I've been calling, a preseason game before you get to this final stretch run here of the regular season, which then, of course, leads to tournament time. Were you worried? Are you alarmed about how Tennessee performed? Or is it just like, hey, you won, let's move on? A couple different parts to this. A, I was more so teasing you guys about that game in particular, but I expected a little bit of a letdown, sleepy start for Tennessee. So first half, I mean, Missouri is dreadful, as you guys well know. So wasn't surprised about their offensive performance against a very, very elite Tennessee defense, at least when you look at their front court, maybe not so much. When it comes to their guards, as good as Dalton Connect is offensively, he and Danny can get beat off the dribble, as we saw in Kentucky, even though the Vols won at Rupp. But second half, they turned it around. Connect was pretty stout offensively in that half. And you look at some of his comparisons in terms of, I was digging into this earlier in the week, some metric sites have player comps for guys like Connect, and he's being compared to McDermott. Buddy Heal, Josh Hart, Derek White, Chris Duarte, Cam Johnson, when it comes to his collegiate efficiency, especially this year. And I've been pretty surprised at how well and how fine of a jump he's made coming from a low mid-major to one of the best, if not the best, conference in college basketball. But big picture with Tennessee, I guess the only slight concern I have looking ahead to this Texas A&M game is okay, they've played better defensively over the last three games, but who have those wins come against, you know? Yeah, the the recent run here has been very easy for Tennessee. That's why I called it the preseason. But now you're getting set to, you know, Texas A&M, not very good, but after that you'll have four quad one games to end the season with, and the SEC Conference Championship race is pretty close right now. You know, I asked you about that two weeks ago if you thought there was any value in that right now, Alabama minus 135, Tennessee plus 140, Auburn plus 650 to win the SEC. Do you have a lean there on either of those teams? Auburn, I I discussed this on my podcast earlier in the week. I wouldn't touch even though they're still in the mix just because Jalen Williams and that knee injury, I would expect him to be out through the SEC or before the SEC tournament if he comes back in early March for that. So I I don't really like Auburn down the stretch here. I think they get right when he comes back, but he is such an integral part of that offense. As good as Jani Broom has been this year, Williams' three-point efficiency is off the charts, I think in near the 47% range. Tennessee, I think at plus money, I mentioned that to you guys a few weeks ago, I think is 
interesting. Kentucky, we saw them regress defensively. Alabama, I still have a lot of concerns with. Offensive or defensively, I should say, offensively, not so much, even though they shot around 25% from three against Florida. But not really a market I'm super interested in, although Kentucky still in that plus 140 range is a little intriguing. So let's keep that thread going with SEC. Thanks for joining us, by the way, Eli. It's good talking to you. Um, so there's a couple big games tomorrow. Um, certainly Houston at Baylor, uh, which is happening at noon for the Big 12. But let's let's stay on the SEC for a second and talk about this Alabama game in Rupp Arena tomorrow afternoon, 4 o'clock on CBS. Kentucky disappointed in Baton Rouge the other night. Alabama keeps on rolling, but of course we're a little hopeful here in in Knoxville. Uh, it's rare for us to be rooting for Kentucky in a game, but I have to say we're <laughs> we're uh, we're probably Wildcat fans at least for tomorrow. But what are your thoughts on this game in terms of just action in general and how you think it could trend? Yeah, I mean, the total for this game is going to be in the 180 range, which sounds absurd for a college basketball game. But with these two offenses and how both teams are ranked outside of the top 70 and defensive efficiency, you would expect it to be right around that number. We saw it with Alabama against Florida finishing in the upper 80s, low 90s, and they didn't shoot that well from deep, like I mentioned. So Mark Sears is an explosive point guard, as you guys well know, and Kentucky can't stop a nosebleed, let alone... Oh, hold on, Eli. i got to stop you there because I lost a lot of money last Saturday thinking that Kentucky couldn't stop a nosebleed, and then I looked up and Auburn had nine points like 11 minutes into the game. They, they did stop Auburn's nosebleed on Saturday. That's true, and I was pretty surprised about that. I, I thought Auburn seemed a little shell-shocked from the get-go in that game about Kentucky's defensive intensity, and it kind of goes to the notion that this team turns it on when they want to. But also, you go back to that LSU game on Wednesday, and I don't – like, there's some parts of me watching that game where I was thinking, okay, this is a little bit of a, a look-ahead game for Kentucky. But their guards continue to get beat off the dribble. Rob Dillingham, this stat surprised me. Kentucky is 12-2 and two when Dillingham plays under 24 minutes, which on the surface you think, okay, Dillingham is an excellent offensive player, and – he's presumably going to be a lottery pick. So how could Kentucky be bad when he's – or how can they be better when he's not on the floor? But at the same time, he hit that shot down the stretch to give Kentucky the lead in the final seconds, but then he drifts back on the defensive end when the when Piero blocked the shot, and then Ward was his man. So uh, Dillingham is not a 6'5 guard, but still, to jog back uh, – you just have to have some sort of spatial awareness, which it's just an oddity for me when you have such a, a fine defensive guard when it comes to generating turnovers in Reed Shepard, but he continues to make lapses on that end of the floor along with the rest of this very young Kentucky team. So looking at this game matchup-wise, Alabama could have its way on the offensive glass. We saw that be a bit of an issue for Florida, even though the tied shots weren't falling. But it seems like a good spot for Kentucky. I'm not necessarily leaning that way from a betting standpoint just because I'm not sure where the market is going to open up this one. But if this is a round of pick, 
Calipari, even though I'm not a huge fan of his post-game antics, saying that he had to prep for a early Saturday game after the uh, in the post-game press conference again after LSU and uh, only taking two questions, even though the game is at 4 p.m. Eastern on Saturday, was again just very strange after talking smack after the Auburn win. But I do think Kentucky bounces back, especially if they get Trey Mitchell back from that shoulder injury. Is there a game? or games that you are circling as you look forward to Saturday? Yes. Duke-Wake Forest, similar to Kentucky-Alabama, just depends on where the market opens up at. We've seen the market shade towards home teams, uh, give them a couple extra points and a bump. But I think Duke's perimeter defense is due for a lot of three-point regression in in a negative sense. If you look at their last five games, allowing a 21.7% clip on corner threes, 24.5% uh, percentage in terms of the opponent's shooting inefficiency on above the break threes, which is anywhere else on the court outside of the corners. And they've won their last five games. So a lot of their, a lot that's gone into this winning streak has come from a lot of positive variance. And for the most part, Three-point defense, it's not to say that teams with ball pressure like Houston can force you into difficult shots, but 50, 60, 70% of the time, three-point defense is based on luck. And it's not like Duke has a a plethora of stout defensive guards. So Wake Forest can shoot it from three, not necessarily the most reliant three-point shooting team, but... You look at guys like Monsanto, who's starting to get healthy, and the Gonzaga transfer and Hunter Salad. Wake Forest, having its tournament hopes on the line, I don't know if they would be on the all the way on the right side of the bubble with a win in this game because they're a, definitely a bubble team at this point. But still, big game for their at-large hopes. So I like Wake Forest in that one. And then looking ahead to Sunday, a team near you guys, Memphis, I, I think, is able to take advantage of an FAU team that continues to be overvalued in the market. I know the Tigers have lost six of the last 10 games, and Penny Hardaway gets questioned whether he should still have that job as the Memphis coach, and I totally understand that. But Memphis is still uber-talented, and Naquan Tomlin seems to be coming into his own like he did last year at Kansas State, starting to get more comfortable. Memphis very, very athletic, and I think poses an issue for FAU's front court. Talking with Eli Hershkovich, thelines.com. You talked about Wake Forest. My producer, Sam, brought to my attention that uh, a couple weeks ago you wrote that Clemson, you liked their profile to make a dark horse Final Four run, at least with the odds that you were presented. Is there another team right now that you're looking at that thinks a little undervalued in the market when you look at their futures? Well, I want to I wanna highlight Clemson, actually, because you could still get them at 27-1, to 1, and – I still believe that not only from an odd standpoint, but for a team, I don't want to go as far as saying because they're not even close to as talented as UConn. And like I have said to you guys in the past, I had a UConn future in the 50 to one range going back to last November, but for a team that can create a lot of matchup problems in the tournament and played really well on neutral floors in non-conference play and away from home from that matter wins at Alabama, even though Alabama defensively has a lot of problems. It's still a upper echelon team in college basketball, and Clemson took care of business with a two- or three-possession win on the road. They could stretch the floor at every single position. 
uh, P.J. Hall, one of the best centers in college basketball, a three-level scorer, and one of the more underrated transfers in the country that gets no praise because no one knows anything about him is Jack Clark, who came in from North Carolina State. Since he's gotten healthy, this is going back to the early part of February when Clemson went on the road at North Carolina, which they never do, and that is a very tough place to play for sure. Clemson, top 30 in both adjusted offense and adjusted defense. Uh, This team, as size, not only can they space the floor, but three through five with with Shefflin and Hall and Clark, Gerard, a Syracuse transfer, one of the more potent three-point floor spacers and one of the better point guards really in college basketball. So I know you asked me to give you another team, but I really think there's still value in a Clemson team that no matter the seed and no matter the bracket can create a lot of matchup problems. I'm going to sprinkle it. I'm going to, I'm going to sprinkle it. I'm going to ride right there with you earlier this week. I grabbed Florida at 19 to one. So maybe that's what I'm going to ride right there with Florida and Clemson. And then we will laugh all the way to the bank. Eli. (laughs) <laughs> Listen, Florida is an interesting team, too. I know they fell to Alabama, but still, they've won, what, seven of their last nine games. Todd Golden, I mean, that coaching tree, going back to their San Francisco days, Kyle Smith with a huge win at Arizona last night of 13-and-a-half-point dogs, kind of similar to what South Carolina did to you guys Easy. a few weeks ago. <laughs> Not try to rub salt the wound there, but, yeah, that – I mean, Florida – Go back to last season and Golden's first year. I was pretty high on that team, but a bunch of transfers that failed to come together continuity-wise, kind of similar to what we're seeing with St. John's, even though they're very, very talented. But Walter Clayton, speaking of Patino, coming from Iona last year, Zion Pullen, another mid-major transfer, and Tyree Samuel from Seton Hall. Also, this team has started to take a step up ever since Riley Kugel started to play well off the bench in the middle part of this conference schedule. I'm not sure why he only saw two minutes. I don't know if it was an injury against Alabama or what took place, but either way, Florida definitely a team to watch and a very, very well-coached team come the tournament. Let's talk about this noon matchup that I referred to a little bit earlier, Eli, uh, number two Houston at number 11 Baylor. This, to me, is kind of a um, opposite worlds collide type of scenario. You've got Houston number one in defensive efficiency. You've got Baylor number four in offensive efficiency. Um, what are you seeing in terms of? I'd be interested in just hearing what your thoughts, uh, what what they're saying at the books on the total for this type of game. Yeah, it's. I think it's going to be. It's a. It's a good point because you think about that elite Cougars defense number one in across all metrics in college basketball at that end of the floor. They pressure the ball better than anybody in the country. I mean, going back to I've been following this Cougars team and program for a long time. I had futures on them going back to the Rob Gray year, even the year after that with Davis and a really athletic front court Armani Brooks too at the wing. Uh I mean really, really out bigs year over year that generate second chance shots continuously and this team is no different Jawan Roberts one of the more underrated front court bigs in college basketball but I do think if there's one kind of team I tweeted this out earlier in the week that can knock off Houston I don't think Baylor gets it done because to your point defensively this team is not it not like the prototypical Scott Drew defense that we've seen at least two or three years ago when they won the national championship and were much better year over year at that end of the floor. But 
the type of team that can knock off Houston in a tournament setting, even though I do think they're well above everybody else in my college basketball power ratings, is a team that could space the floor because Houston runs that no-middle defense. So they pack you in. Yes, they pressure the ball, but on driving kick opportunities and in transition, they are a little bit vulnerable on those corner threes. If, if, if Baylor doesn't turn the ball over, which has been a concern like we saw with Baylor on the road at Kansas, I know this game is at home, but Dennis, both Dennis and Nunn can be loose with the ball. Also, Langston Love isn't healthy on that ankle, didn't play at BYU on uh, Tuesday early in the week. We'll see if he plays in this one. If Houston limits their miscues and they're efficient and could space out the Cougars, maybe this game is tight and maybe the Bears pull it out at home. But like I alluded to, I have Houston way above everybody else, about three points better than any other college basketball team. I think this is the year Samson gets it done. Uh, the way Jamal Shedd is playing at both ends of the floor, it's, I mean, it's not just the bigs that – Samson gets the most out of it. It's the guard play. Cryer, too, has really upped his game defensively, and he was on Baylor over the last couple of years, so not really known for his defense. I'm uber impressed with Houston. Maybe Baylor keeps it tight, but I like the Cougars in the long term, which goes without saying. All right, let's jump to mid-majors. Um, quick question here. Um, I had somebody asking me last night, like, if you went beyond the top eight teams that are seated in the NCAA tournament we're seeing how that shakes out right now who could be a team that could win it all and last year we saw between Florida Atlantic and even San Diego State you started seeing kind of mid-major teams get to the final four or in San Diego State's case the championship game um, I know you posted a piece on the lines of some um, some mid-majors I'm a little disappointed that there's a there's a darling team that maybe I went to school at. Maybe the Sean is off Indiana State, Bob. Enough. I don't see any Indiana State love there. But <laughs> they've been exposed. But um, just curious again, off the you know dovetailing off your piece on the lines, is there a mid-major team that you feel is a good bet in terms of making a a, a deep run? Certainly, you know, not, probably not winning it, but you know, someone who could could you know give you some hope to cling to. Yeah, that's where those final four markets become kind of interesting. I am, you know, uh, you mentioned San Diego State last year, and I had a final four future on them. I really liked the bracket, the way it played out, and they got some help with Arizona going down in the first round of Princeton. But then again, that kind of went back to my point that I thought a lot of those uh, teams in that region were inflated in the wrong direction. But you look at the Mountain West overall, full body of work since 2005, I think 27 and 56 against the spread in the tournament, which goes to the point that teams that play in elevation have that home court advantage. You think about New Mexico in the pit and Utah state. Like we saw, they upended San Diego state earlier this week in a really good situational spot after getting blown out at Colorado state and the Rams blew them out over the weekend. So a lot of home court advantage really coming to fruition in that conference and for good reason because of the elevation factor. And that's kind of why on a neutral court setting you have seen in the past, I know San Diego State was not the example, but usually Mountain West teams struggle when you get them away from that prototypical home court advantage. Now, to your point in the article, I mentioned Colorado State. I've always been an Isaiah Stevens one of the best point guards in college basketball. Nico Medved is 
I don't know how that guy is not at a high major yet. Maybe Colorado State is throwing some under-the-table money at him, but he's going to get a job eventually, uh, much more in a better position than Kyle Smith was, to be fair, going back to when he shifted from San Francisco to Wazoo. Not that Wazoo is any sort of a heralded program out in the Northwest, but uh, the Rams could definitely make some noise in the tournament, one of the better defensive teams, too, in that conference. You know, you mentioned Indiana State, and I actually had a play on Southern Illinois against them over the weekend. I really like this Salukis team, but uh, to your point about the Sycamores, we'll see with them defensively. I, I know they're one of the better shooting teams in college basketball, but Isaiah Swope dealing with a couple of knee injuries, and he's not going to have surgery during the season, but he's going to require surgery in the offseason. I think he's their leading scorer, so – We'll see how that plagues them at that end of the floor, considering they need to be ultra-efficient in the Missouri Valley Conference Tournament. But I mentioned the Salukis. Xavier Johnson, the third-leading scorer in college basketball. Brian Mullins was on that Loyola Chicago staff. I actually know him pretty well. He was the defensive coordinator when the Ramblers made it to that Final Four, going back to, I think, 2017, speaking of mid-majors to make deep NCAA tournament runs. Now, by no means am I saying... Southern Illinois to the Final Four. But if you're looking for some fun mid-majors to watch over the next couple weeks, the Salukis could be one in Arch Madness to potentially pull off a couple of upsets. Eli, I appreciate the insight as always. We will ride Wake Forest with you. I will be cheering Clemson to make the Final Four unless they're in Tennessee's region. (laughs) Give Eli a follow on X. You can also go and follow and subscribe to the Lions podcast. You can look it up under the lines or just under outside shots. He got one posted up about an hour ago, breaking down the weekend that is. So you can listen to him there as well. Appreciate you, brother. Talk to you next week. Sounds good. Have a good rest of the show. My only concern with Tennessee is oh, that God. A&M is going to pile it up on the offensive glass, but good luck to your ball. <laughs> we, we, we've started. We, we started sprinkling a little double big lineup. Adu and Awaka played, you know, a lot of minutes together, 14 <laughs> minutes together, I believe, uh, the other night against Missouri. So we're going to go two bigs. Don't worry about it. We're going to rebound. It's fine. <laughs> Have a good one, guys. Thank you, Appreciate Eli. you. See you, buddy. He just reminded me of one thing as we head to break talking about San Diego State and how much I enjoyed how they choked out Nebraska or Nebraska, Alabama in the tournament last year. Yeah, that was nice. Oh, it was great. Eh, well, I got to be honest. It, it it was a nice – it was a decent pick-me-up. I, I was – I believe that was the same night that we lost, right? Or was it the day after maybe? It was the day after we lost? It was, I know I was still was in New York day, City. It was the day after. Yeah, okay. Yeah. I know I was still in New York City, and I was down and sad and – yeah. I did put a large wager in on San Diego State to cover, so at least they give me a little pick-me-up on the way home. A small, slight pick-me-up. But, yeah, they, they got down early in that game, and then, yeah, just walked them down and choked them out and embarrassed them. Brandon Miller, big goose egg. <laughs> or late in that, he might score a couple points. But, yeah, bad game from him. Yes. I don't know if I, if Eli swayed me on watching the Salukis, though. I think I'm going that. I'm going to Salukis. Maybe check it out in the bracket. I'm like, oh, yeah, Eli talked about them. I'll pick them to win maybe one round, but yeah. uh, I'm good. I'm good on that. I'm not going to be honest. I'm not going to watch any Wake Forest Duke either. <laughs> Might sprinkle a little money on Wake Forest just out of respect to Eli and the work he puts in, thelines.com, but still, uh, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think I'm going to watch any of that Forbes and Coach K's replacement. 
I don't need to see John Shire. I'm good. I'm all right with that. Only, only uh, is it John Diebler? Is that the Ohio State coach? That's the Jake only, Diebler. Jake Diebler. Damn it, I thought it was John. Was there a John Diebler? John's, the, yeah, he's his younger brother. He's okay. A, he's an assistant at Butler. And he played know. Ohio State as well, right? Because my friend played like AAU basketball against John Diebler, and I was yeah. thinking that was the same guy, but then I was like, he's a little bit old for that. Anyways, okay, never mind. We'll wrap up the show. Best and worst of the weekend as well as uh, what we're looking forward to this weekend. Stick with us. Ever been Get ready for it. All right, what was the best and worst of the week? Bob, what do you got? What's the best? you want to start with the best or the worst? You could pick. Or you could do both. Let's start with uh, let's start with the best. Let's be positive. Okay. I'm surprised. We really didn't talk about this, but the details of uh, Steve Sarkeesian's contract extension at Texas are out there. He gets his bag, man. And so that, to me, is... If you're in the Sarkeesian clan, that's best of the week. What's included is two cars, use of a private jet for personal use, game tickets for friends and family, country club membership, $300,000 signing bonus before April 24th, and then seven years. So he got his contract extended four years. Seven years close to $75 million guaranteed, and that does not include performance incentives that could go as high as $1.85 million annually. To boot, 60% of this payout will go to his LLC, Sark Enterprises, to, you know, lay out some tax deferment. And I mean, it's a 78% pay raise, and this is what they would call the Saban effect. Texas felt they simply couldn't afford to leave him open to get poached. Would he have to do that for tax purposes, being in Texas? I thought, like, the no state income tax might be protected him a bit there. And I, granted, I'm no, not. No, there's still federal tax, yeah. huge federal tax for yeah. that kind of money. So, okay, it's sense. just deferring it. It's, you know. Sure. But uh, I would have liked for Texas to be like, no, nah, we're good. We'll give you the money, but the private jet, you're not getting that. You're going to walk over that? You're going to leave? You're not getting my private jet. Well, to be clear, it's like 20, 25 hours a year. So it's oh. really for a handful of trips. Yeah. But still, that's that's yeah. a nice bu- – I'm telling you, that is that is an amazing perk. It, if I was ever, like, crazy rich, that's the first thing I'd do is private air. That's, that's a game changer. Steve Sarkeesian, the greatest success story of the Nick Saban rehabilitation program. Yes. And one of the rehab facility he checked himself into in Washington. All right, do you have a worst of the weekend? I do. Coaches behaving badly. Basketball coaches. My God. Very quickly. We talked about (laughs) Penny Hardaway getting run out at home by SMU and then saying, uh, this is not competing at all. I don't know what's going on. Were players responsible? Not all guys. Don't try to do that to all the guys. But it seems like some were. So he still hung them out. Patino, we know what he said. He went nuts. Um, Danny Hurley walking off the court, heading to the locker room in Omaha after UConn gets trucked by Creighton responds to a heckling fan with a stare down and says, if you reach over, I'll knock you out. Dennis Gates, after losing to our guys, we got to do a better job at drawing fouls. I think we suck at it. We're effing terrible. And he said something else instead of effing. Make sure you don't bleep that out. Last one was Damon Stoudemire. This was just 
the other night after getting smoked by Clemson. To me, the way I see it, when I get my guys in here, it's going to be different. And I'm all right saying it because my type of guy, whether he's making a bucket or not making a bucket, he's going to have to play for the front and the back of the jersey each and every day. We don't have that now. Just coaches just – I mean, maybe it's the pressure of the job. We don't even talk about what Calipari has been saying all season long. It's like, do we ever imagine, like, Coach Barnes, Coach Heupel ever saying stuff like this? If I tell him, maybe. I don't know. But, I mean, it's like – it's unbelievable to me. That's my worst of the week. It's like these guys get paid big money, and there is pressure with the job. But good lord, man, quit! quit everybody's pretty much blaming everybody but themselves for their lack of success. Sam, your best and worst of the weekend. My best of the week. It was Washington State. Fitting, uh, Kyle Smith. Only three coaches have taken Washington State to the NCAA tournament since the end of World War II. Two of those being Kelvin Sampson and Tony Bennett. All three of them went on to be the coach of the year uh, for Division One. Kyle Smith feels to be on his way for Washington State. They play Arizona State, USC, UCLA, and Washington. Could end up winning the Pac, the Pac-12, I guess, and you know what's left of it. Crazy. Uh, my loser, though, we talked about. No, no, it. your your worst of the weekend. I'm sorry, yeah, my worst, my worst loser. Uh, Fanatics uniforms. Yeah, it's just terrible. They're Damn, they're the worst things in the world. Okay. I'll no, that's fine. We you can elaborate. Anyways. I'll I'll take Charlie Woods. Charlie Woods had a tough day on the course yesterday in his in his qualifier. Hold on a second. So <laughs> so you're just a kid. You're just this poor kid, and we gotta watch out for Sam, and <laughs> he's his mother's kid. But Charlie Woods is like what, like 15? You're gonna rank him over the coals just because he had a 16 over round and a hole where he shot eight over. He made a 12. I know, but he's just a kid. He is just a kid. He wouldn't be able to go work in the coal mines or in the oil fields. They'd be like, sorry, come back in a couple years, Charlie. It was terrible, though. It does have to suck. I mean, like, he's not going to be – he's not the prodigy everyone wants him to be, right? Like, he's not a – Yeah, I don't know. He's not I mean, that guy. He he's might got end up being so much good. pressure on his back, you know. It feels like it's kind of a hard – He might <laughs> end up being good, but he's not going to be the guy, I don't think. I mean, I just, it just seems kind of crazy. Swimming upstream without a paddle right now. He's got plenty of paddles. He's, he's he'll be fine. He's got plenty of safety nets. Well, yeah. Ti- Tiger will make professional sure he's golf okay. paddles. At the very least, in a in couple it. years, Charlie will get a big offer from Liv. <laughs> His dad will not allow him to do that. One. At, at the very least, he'll get a big. Well, you want him to wear the Sunday red in in terms of uh, in on the corn ferry or on Liv making a lot of money. Eldrick, make Probably up your the mind. Corn ferry. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know if he's good enough to make that. He might end up being really good. I don't know. He just doesn't seem like the prodigy people want him to be. But, yeah, the worst of the weekend, the Fanatics jersey is terrible. My best of the weekend, Kevin Durant, who went viral yesterday for running out of the tunnel at the <laughs> Mavericks game. Someone called him a bitch. He turned around and went, walked up to them. It was a woman that kept trying to give him a handshake and dap him up, and he wouldn't do it. And then the very moment the guy tries to explain, no, bro, I host a sports podcast, Kevin Durant rolled his eyes, turned around and walked away. I didn't know what the dialogue was. I saw yeah, the video. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah, the woman's trying to shake his hand. I'm like, oh, come on, shake my hand. I'm just kidding. He's like, no, why are you talking to me that way? And then the guy tried to lean in and explain, no, bro, it's okay. I host a sports podcast. And Kevin Durant immediately rolled his eyes and walked away. Like, okay, get out of here, clown. Hope you guys have a great weekend. Our weekend's getting started. You guys probably still have a full work day ahead of you. Sorry. Sorry. But you can... Listen to Fan Run Radio to get through it. The G.I. Jake Show, Brett Holander, 
Marcus Young, intern Jack, they're coming up next. Stay locked in on Fan Run Radio. This past high noon, it's time for a vodka soda made with a vodka you've actually heard of.